Hi folks, welcome back to Cognitive Connections with me, Carrie Candy. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Robert Sutherland, a professor of neuroscience and chair of the neuroscience department at the University of Lethbridge. He's here to share his insights into his research on abnormal proteins, the immune system's role in dementia, and what he finds surprising in his work. I'm excited, and I know you will be too. Let's dive into this chat with Dr. Sutherland. I'm here with Dr. Robert Sutherland from the University of Lethbridge. Dr. Sutherland, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Great. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate. Dr. Sutherland, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what your role is at the University of Lethbridge? Sure. So, First and foremost, I'm a professor of neuroscience, and I'm the chair of the neuroscience department, director of the Canadian Center for Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Lethbridge, and I'm a board of governors research chair. And what was your background? How did you end up in this role? Uh, Good question. So as an undergraduate, I became really enamored of research on the brain. Really, during my first year of university, I changed career plans and decided to become a brain researcher and uh, continued that quest through my PhD at Dalhousie University, uh, where I did a PhD in the Department of Psychology there. There really were no neuroscience departments in Canada at that time, although there were lots of really good brain researchers at Dalhousie University. And so I completed my PhD and came to Lethbridge to do a postdoctoral fellowship with uh, Drs. Brian Kolb and Ian Wishaw, who were really doing groundbreaking work on using non-human animals to model uh, human brain diseases. Mm -hmm. And now you're involved in neuroscience and the, the way that we're dealing with dementia. And it, I'm wondering, like, what specific research are you involved now? So I'm using primarily non-human animals uh, to try to understand the basic pathology that goes on in the brain that creates the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and some other forms of dementia as well. We're very interested in being able to visualize Uh, the two abnormal proteins that pop up in all Alzheimer's disease, amyloid beta, which forms plaques through the brain, and uh, tangled tau, another protein that pops up um, and spreads through the brain. Uh, We're really interested in finding out what the mechanisms of spread are. So each of these can start in one locus in the brain, one spot, Mm -hmm. and then it spreads And a number of people have pointed to the resemblance to uh, another kind of disease called prion disease, Mm -hmm. which is based on abnormal folded protein causing surrounding normal proteins to start adopting an abnormal fold. Uh, And that sort of spreads uh, uh, through the brain. It turns out that Alzheimer's disease resembles that but it's not exactly the same process. So it isn't a prion-based misfolding disease, even though the the primary proteins that are abnormal are misfolded. 
Okay. We're interested in finding out whether uh, there's lots of different ways that uh, these proteins misfold. And we know that in some people who have been living with Alzheimer's disease, the disease runs very quickly in less than a year. Mm. So from the time they first notice symptoms until they succumb to the disease, it's less than a year. And it turns out those um, people have a misfolded version of amyloid beta that's unique. And so we thought perhaps uh, the way that the, the foldase determines whether it's a slow form or fast. Turns out you can take that protein um, extracted from the brains of those donors and you mm-hmm. can put it into a mouse. Uh, oh. And the mouse develops amyloid um, plaques more rapidly than they normally would as a result of putting in a, a human misfolded uh, protein from one of these fast developing forms. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, mm-hmm. though, uh, and this is one of the biggest surprises for me, even though there's a lot more amyloid plaque developing early in the mice that receive the human misfolded uh, protein, they don't develop symptoms any earlier. So there's way more amyloid, but that's not producing more uh, symptoms in the mice. Uh, and we've done a number of different experiments to look at the rate of disease onset in mice experimentally and the development of amyloid plaque. And it seems as though um, you can't predict um, the severity of Alzheimer's disease symptoms just by knowing the amount of amyloid plaque. And I think that was a surprise. And other Mm. laboratories found something similar. There's a, a disconnect between the level of amyloid plaque and the severity of symptoms. So I'd say our findings, that's one of the most interesting and surprising findings. We're also trying to understand one of the other processes in Alzheimer's disease involving the immune system. So probably you know that uh, there are many conditions that involve provoking immunity that actually cause uh, Alzheimer's disease to be faster or slower or more or less probable. And so we're looking at the main cell type in the brain that uh, mediates immunity uh, inside the brain. Uh, And that's a kind of cell called microglia. And so we're looking at the various forms of microglia to see if we can shift the probability of Alzheimer's disease by shifting the kind of microglia that are expressed. Uh, so that's another uh, avenue. And we have uh, several other kinds of research programs going on as well. Yeah. But I'd say th- those are two of the more interesting to me. So it's clear my lab is interested in uh, getting right to the root causes of Alzheimer's right. disease. Many people a few years ago thought there was only one cause for Alzheimer's disease, but that's not true. We now know there are many, many different processes that are abnormal that end up causing uh, the final disease that people end up living with. Um, It's a little like imagining that um, there would only be one source for the Mississippi River. In fact, we know there's thousands and thousands of tributaries uh, that all end up going out of the same mouth of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that final stage of Alzheimer's disease is like the mouth of the Mississippi. Uh, And there's many different processes that contribute to that uh, condition. 
many of them, in fact, most are probably related to genes. Mm. Um, and, and I think that message hasn't been clearly made. So a lot of focus has been on the early onset genetic form of Alzheimer's disease, where there's mm -hmm. one of three different uh, mutations. And then people have heard about um, APOE4, uh, one of the lipid um, controlling genes. Mm -hmm. And we know that the probability of Alzheimer's disease is higher if you have a bad version of the APOE4 um, uh, allele. Okay. But it turns out there's about 27 other genes. Whoa. Some of which, yeah, some of which modify lipid metabolism. Some of them are involved in controlling the immune process in the brain, those microglia that I talked about. Mm -hmm. Others are involved in the folding tau, that other tangled protein. Still others are involved in a process called endocytosis. And that's when a cell takes in debris or, or uh, molecules around it uh, and digests them. People have unusual variants in all of these, you know, 30 different genes. The ones that are in familial Alzheimer's disease, you have 100% probability of uh, developing Alzheimer's disease. With APOE4, uh, if you have the bad allele, it's far lower probability. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you sum up all of these 27 other genes, you account for the majority of the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Wow. All but all but 35% of the risk. Wow. So that's something that I think when we realized it wasn't a single genetic cause, I think everyone thought, well, it's probably going to be modifiable uh, lifestyle factors. Right. But now when we've identified all these other unusual genes throughout the whole genome, the amount of modifiable lifestyle factors, things we can actually manage that mm -hmm. will reduce, has gone down to about 35% of the total risk. That's where we are now. And is there a way to test? Yes. Oh, there is. Okay. Yeah. So it used to be uh, commercial companies would offer for a few hundred dollars um, a look at about, oh, I'd say less than one one hundredth of the genome. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I had that done. I was very interested to see if I carried um, APOE4 um, mm -hmm. since my mother uh, had um, Alzheimer's disease and so did her mother. Uh, it seemed like there was a heritable component there. So I had that done. But now you can have your whole genome sequenced for about three hundred dollars. Oh, Okay. And so you can, if you wish, I mean, I'm not sure that everyone would want to, and I think there needs to be good counseling uh, for people before they have their entire genome done. Mm -hmm. um, but you can, if you wish, find out um, what particular gene variant you have at all of these different loci. So um, your mom, you said, and your mm -hmm. grandmother, both yeah. Alzheimer's. How does that affect your work in the everyday, the day-to-day? -day? Do you think about them? I do. And I think every scientist who studies uh, the aging brain um, thinks about the people in their family who were really not enjoying the last years of their life at all uh, because of Alzheimer's disease. I think we all mm -hmm. uh, have seen family members suffer through that. And uh, those of us who've been caregivers really have um, a major impact 
from that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my mother-in-law also died with Alzheimer's disease or, or perhaps another uh, similar uh, dementia. So mm-hmm. that's three, three out of four, counting my in-laws, died with an age-related dementia. That's a big impact uh, on me. Uh, yeah, and it I ha- can imagine. It happened in the middle of my career, basically. So I was uh, trained to study memory and the neurobiology of memory uh, mm-hmm. in the brain. Learned how to use animal models for studying the conditions of memory problems. And so it was a natural step for me later in mm-hmm. my career to really focus on age-related dementias, especially Alzheimer's disease. Um, another part of what is important to me is that um, a lot of animal models are not very good at predicting what will be a good way to reverse uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's disease or slow them down. Uh, and so improving animal models is a very important part of uh, what my lab is doing now. And, and there are some obvious ways that those models can be improved. And so we're working on that as well. That's great. I mean, I think ultimately uh, there were a lot of things that we were able to do to improve um, quality of life uh, mm-hmm. for my mom, um, for example. But I, I was utterly struck by the fact that we need to prevent this or cure it, just make things more comfortable. Although that's important um, right. that we do. But it, it made me commit to trying to find a way to halt the disease or reverse it. And uh, ultimately, that's what science promises to do. We will find out what the various major tributaries are, how they produce that final big river of pathology, um, and we'll start damming it up. And um, I think there won't be a single place where we can block things. Uh, So we're going to be looking at a multi-pronged therapeutic approach. Um, So the, the new drug that was just approved by the FDA Lacaine, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's now two others that are coming down the pipe. Um, they both end in MAB as well, which mm-hmm. stands for monoclonal antibody. Uh, so these are vaccination strategies, basically. You're, you're putting in antibodies that clear a particular protein. And in the case of the first three MABs, they're clearing uh, abnormal amyloid beta. Right. They're pretty good at it. And not too surprisingly, given what I told you about some of the animal research in my lab and others, it only has a little bit of a benefit. Uh, I mean, it's it's reliable. You can uh-huh. reliably see uh, some benefit from these drugs that clear amyloid beta, but mm-hmm. it doesn't reverse mm-hmm. the symptoms. It just has a little more gradual decline. Um, uh-huh. That's what these drugs can do. But if you could combine that with a, an approach, perhaps another monoclonal antibody that slows down the tangling of tau, perhaps if you added that, you'd end up causing the disease to progress even more slowly. If you could keep microglia from becoming uh, activated mm-hmm. with a third drug, perhaps that would halt it um, or uh, slow it down uh, a great deal. Uh, so I think that's the strategy that many people are working on right now, is this mm-hmm. multi approach where no single dam will stop the flow. 
Right. I like the way that you use the river that that because that for someone like myself, who is I don't think in these terms very often, it, I can mm. visualize that as a river mm. that's being fed by several different factors and contributors. But mm. you can also try to stop it and dam it in different areas by treatments. So and exactly. some of those treatments are going to be doing different things than others. So exactly that's, right. that's fascinating. And it's exciting to see. For sure. Mm -hmm. I have it in my family as well. Um, can you tell me what what surprises you about your work? I, I often ask people this because, you know, it's it's very interesting work uh, and it affects so many people these days. What surprises you when you do your work? Um, so. A couple of things, I, I think really coming to the realization that the one abnormal protein amyloid beta which shows up really early, decades before people start showing symptoms, uh, they will have amyloid beta building up in their brains, literally and that, decades. And that before. is something you can be tested for? You can, but not everyone who has a buildup of amyloid beta is on the path to Alzheimer's disease. Oh, I see. So it's it's the most surprising thing. Uh, we normally think of a disease condition in people as having an original cause that then may cascade uh, into different um, problems. In this case, the earliest thing we can find is not causal. It, it is not the cause. Uh, and in fact, it may be that by the time it's detectable, it's already started triggering the Alzheimer's process if you have the right other genes um, to enable it. Mm -hmm. And if you have the wrong parts of the modifiable lifestyle factors. So if you haven't corrected hearing problems, if you continue to smoke uh, tobacco, mm -hmm. if you allowed your lipid levels to get up really high, if you have uncorrected uh, high blood pressure, if you have all of those things, then maybe the amyloid beta, when it starts building up, triggers um, mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease. So I think the most surprising thing to me was this fact that there wasn't this pattern that we see in other disease conditions like diabetes or some uh, other age-related conditions. Alzheimer's disease doesn't have this single originating cause. The other thing is how excited people get by being able to do basic science work on a disease condition like Alzheimer's. And so having students join my lab mm -hmm. uh, as uh, undergraduates or graduate students or postdocs and discovering that an important condition like Alzheimer's disease is amenable to study using the normal science methods they learned in school. So I, I think seeing that um, excitement surprised me quite a lot that people really get activated by trying to understand uh, a, a truly terrible disease using the things that they learned in high school and undergraduate school in science classes. <laughs> so I think that's those are two big surprises for me. Yeah. And of course, they carry on that work when they have their own laboratories mm -hmm. and continue to, to study it. So I think we've got a good shot at yeah. figuring out how to stop this kind of thing. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about being a scientist is misinformation on mostly on the internet 
it's a big problem these days. And people are obviously looking for information. They're looking for, uh, you know, whatever they can do to help their, either it might be a, a care partner that's looking to help their loved one that's affected by dementia or, you know, someone that is maybe exhibiting symptoms they're worried about. And they go online and there are endless options and sources what what would you say to those people? Like, what is some advice that we can give them, you know, from someone like yourself who is a scientist that, you know, there are ways to vet the information that you're getting? So it's relatively easy for a scientist to be able to track down the validity of information. So you know, I spend, you know, as much time on the Internet as anyone else does mm-hmm. these days. And um, I go to the published, scientifically peer-reviewed research on the topic. Now, it, it's really unfortunate because uh, we haven't, we, we can't train everyone to be able to evaluate uh, scientific journal articles. That, mm-hmm. that really takes um you know, someone to spend many, many years working with other scientists to develop a critical eye for being able to evaluate even scientific articles. Not all of those are correct. So, I mean, there's misinformation even in scientific journals. Mm. Um, and so I would encourage people to to have a, a rational, skeptical attitude uh, about information that they come across. So what I mean by rational skeptical is not to reject everything that they hear as nonsense, um, because some things are actually quite valid. So correcting hearing problems, you can read about that on the Internet. And that turns out to be a very important lifestyle factor um, Mm -hmm. that you can do. And you need to be able to identify valid sources of information. So whenever... I give a talk, a public mm-hmm. talk. Uh, there's always numerous questions uh, about, um, you know, uh, uh, grain belly or about apple cider vinegar or about uh, turmeric. Um, mm-hmm. I hear many people asking about the things they've read on the internet, or maybe even a doctor would have told them uh, mm. some of these. Uh, not all doctors are well trained as scientists. And so uh, you need to identify valid sources of information. Um, I receive questions through my email from people, and I'm happy happy to answer them, as many scientists are. The Alzheimer's disease, the Alzheimer's Society website Mm -hmm. contains links to pretty up to date information. That's another good source of uh, of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And failing that, if it if it seems too good to be true, ninety nine percent of the time it is too yeah. good to be true, not true. Yeah. So something's a magic cure. You don't see it being hailed as a breakthrough in the treatment or prevention of Alzheimer's disease. Then it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that simple. And a lot of the things that are hailed as breakthroughs turn out not to be. It turns out to be a university trying to increase its public prestige or something rather than mm. being genuine. So being a rational skeptic is important and identifying valid sources of information is also important. That being said, I'll just 
say this is another source of surprise in my lifetime. It used to be the case that um, there were people who were public experts. Mm -hmm. They were scientists themselves. You can think of David Suzuki, who was a trained geneticist. Things that he said about genetics and uh, the molecules involved in genetics were state of the art. Mm. Uh, You could trust them. Nowadays, people don't trust any experts. There's been we've witnessed the death of expertise in the public. Mm. You can't trust someone who's got an MD, is dressed up in a white coat. Uh, You can't trust a public expert any longer. And it's really the case that people learn to mimic the characteristics of genuine uh, scientific expertise or medical expertise. Mm -hmm. So you can't judge things by the way they look either. And that misinformation process is getting better and better. They can even generate AI imagery of a genuine expert and have that person say things that are directly opposite of the truth. So they're getting better and they're making money at it. So uh, and we know that drives a lot of activity in our culture. Yes, it does. And there's a danger in that for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Uh, several outbreaks of diseases that we thought we had under control have been caused by these uh, mis- misinformation experts. Mm. Uh, we almost you know, lost the push against um, smoking tobacco, uh, which is a great public health uh, success story. Mm-hmm. We, we delayed and almost lost that battle because people were pushing mis- misinformation about uh, the effects of smoking tobacco. And we're going to see it. Uh, more and more with Alzheimer's disease, especially as we have become better and better at controlling heart disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, people are um, in remission from various cancers. We're going to see Alzheimer's disease come to the fore. It already is more costly. Uh, if you include all age-related dementia, uh, it is now more costly to our society than um, heart disease and cancer combined. So there's going to be a lot of money going towards um, Alzheimer's disease, and that will motivate more misinformation. So it's a huge problem. And I think there are many scientists who directly study this misinformation process, and I hope they come up with good ways to inoculate people against it. Um, We don't really have a magic vaccine against misinformation yet. (laughs) Yeah, I hope they come (laughs) up with a way too. People who put forward misinformation about health have a death count associated with their activity. So people now die of measles, polio, a variety of other whooping cough, conditions that are completely preventable uh, with simple vaccination. And yet they're afraid now uh, to be vaccinated and go to alternative health uh, measures that are ineffective. So there's um, a death count associated with the activities these people engage in, even though they're making money. Uh, wow. And so I think people need to understand that. It's not just pharma companies that make money. It's alternative health. Uh, mm. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Thank you for highlighting that, Dr. Sutherland. Um, and that brings us to the future. What would you like to see happen in dementia research and treatment? in the next 10, 20, 30 years? A couple of things again. Uh, So number one, we already know a lot about how to slow down 
the disease process. So I mentioned more than a third of the cases can be prevented simply by adopting the lifestyle things, by mm -hmm. having people inform themselves about the, the importance of controlling or reversing hearing impairment, avoiding smoking, controlling hypertension, doing everything that improves cardiovascular health is good for preventing dementia. The importance of education, even through adulthood, is, uh, has not been fully unlined. And so there's already a lot of things we can do that prevent or will slow down Alzheimer's disease. So we need to get that information better funneled into the public square than it is right now. I encounter lots of people who have not even heard about the correcting hearing impairment as being an important factor. So the medical and health community needs to do a better job at getting the information that we've already collected out there and in a useful manner. In Southern Alberta in particular, I'm really surprised by the fact that our physicians don't even prescribe the drugs that um, uh, have some benefit. Mm. Uh, so mm. we know that Aricept and some of the other drugs that are in the same class, not for everyone, but for many people, will improve quality of life for some period of time during the process of uh, Alzheimer's disease. Another drug called Memantine and similar drugs also are beneficial. And most people who are in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, uh, aren't, they're not prescribed these drugs. Why? So we, Why is that, do you think? I've, I've heard lots of um, different possibilities. Number one, maybe lack of information on the part of the physician. Mm. Uh, and by the time people with Alzheimer's disease are referred to somebody who's a specialist in age-related problems, including Alzheimer's disease, they're pretty far along in the disease process. They're not permitted to see a specialist until things have become really quite severe. And it may be the case that uh, Aricept et al. aren't very effective later. Mm. In fact, most of the things we know about are more effective early in the disease process. So it, it could be lack of information about um, mm -hmm. how these things should be used. Most family doctors are really stretched now in mm. terms of their time commitment. Um, and there is a special test. Uh, there's actually a couple that could be done uh, before in the province of Alberta, you can prescribe uh, Aricept and other drugs like that. Um, right. And so they don't have the time to do this kind of testing. And if you try and to find neuropsychologists in, you know, that uh, are in your community, and there are none in most communities in Alberta, it, it takes years in order to have the test. So not having an ability to administer simple evaluations that are acceptable um, mm -hmm. for, for prescribing. And the third reason I've heard is that um, most people who develop Alzheimer's disease are, are, are quite old. Mm. And there isn't as strong a motivation to provide the best possible care to elderly people. Uh, it's a bias mm -hmm. in our culture. So if you have, you know, a 25-year-old who has a serious problem and an 85-year-old who has a serious problem, our health system is oriented towards the person who has a greater prospect for productive life, not the 85-year-old. And that's an unfortunate fact of the healthcare system. That is sad. 
I mean, that, I guess, really speaks to when we ask, what would you like to see happen in the future? There are some things that we can do, and it sounds like one of them is providing more services. More services, more information. Absolutely. And, and pushing for better health care and more health care for elderly, not just social services, but rather uh, good health care that's informed by uh, state-of-the-art science. Mm-hmm. I will also say, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced, ultimately, that we will find a combination of approaches that will prevent uh, nearly all cases of Alzheimer's disease. And so I think that uh, another key activity has to be increasing the number of people that are researching Alzheimer's disease. So Mm -hmm. uh, having lots of laboratories seated to be doing Alzheimer's disease work so that students get attracted into um, that area of work. One of them will discover the way to dam up one of the major tributaries. Uh, mm-hmm. And it could happen in Alberta easily. Um, and more funding for research. Heart disease and cancer uh, take up the majority of funding in our medical s- system. That's the mm-hmm. reason why they have effective pr- procedures and therapies now, is because of that uh, amount of funding that was pushed in that direction. That needs to be redirected towards mm-hmm. age-related dementias and Alzheimer's disease in particular. Um that, that's absolutely essential. Um, and every dollar that you spend on doing fundamental research that's uh, directed towards a cure will save a gigantic cost to our society when we have three or four times as many people with Alzheimer's disease as we have right now. Um, In terms of the stress on the healthcare system and everything. And families, yeah. And it, families. It's a huge burden. Um, economically, and socially and emotionally. It's a huge burden. And ultimately, it will be unnecessary. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go, Dr. Sutherland? Um, Just that um, I don't think there's any way that anyone can promise that, you know, after X number of years, there will be a cure. And Mm. if I'm right in my big picture about all the tributaries uh, feeding into the main river, um, it's a multi-factor uh, medical problem. I won't put in a number of years on it, but we will, probably not in my lifetime, but we will find a way to halt Alzheimer's disease and prevent it. That's good news. That's really good news. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dr. Sutherland, for talking to us today. That was well, very informative. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to hear suggestions for guests you would like us to bring on the show. So leave us a review and let us know. Or you can email us as well at help at alzheimer.ab.ca. More resources can be found below in the show notes, including links to research, information for care partners, programs, services, and more. And we are always happy to help. Just reach out. Until next week, take care, stay connected, and remember that every conversation counts in the realm of cognitive connections.